0: Welcome to C-Suite Radio.
1: We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from muling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Serf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm your host Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Here with me today is...
2: Stephen Parencheri. I am a... Uh philosopher by training and trade and degree and that's what they that's what they say on my name tag
1: (laughs) is that the name tag on your collar yeah that's the name tag tag on my collar okay it's a
2: it's a black and white suit i have a nice little padded room with some some nice mattresses
1: (laughs) the end destination for all philosophers
2: (laughs) really i just you know i just found the end destination faster you know like it took me five years or six years it didn't take me a whole career
1: and to think you paid for a whole degree in that
2: Yeah, right? I mean, gosh, that was great.
1: (laughs) Says the man who has a graduate degree in writing.
2: (laughs) Did you know they paid me to do a philosophy degree? Somebody thought it was worth their while to pay me money to pursue a degree in philosophy. Jokes on them. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting because when I found my new found eight years later DMing style is uh, we... We, I'll design these elaborate worlds. I actually kind of, like, take take a little inspiration from you. I I design these elaborate worlds and kind of try to really deep delve into things like epic fantasy. Uh But then, you know, (laughs) there's that part of me where it's also like, you know, if the players want to get themselves like thrown in jail five minutes into the game as opposed to pursuing the main plot, I'm fine with that. Like, it's not my character in jail.
1: (laughs) It's a... One I think is as GM you have to have a sense of mild bemusement at all times.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: And also be willing to see what tone they want the game to go to that day, because as you guys sometimes did, hey, we're going to fight over a carrot, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm seeing they're going. I have a whole arc.
2: D&D is really like, or, or any tabletop game is really like shared storytelling, right? So it's not just me telling a story and me and the, the characters going along for the ride as much as maybe some grognards would like that. I really think it is we're all sitting down and collectively telling a story. And of course, I have a lot of lore and backstory and ideas planned. I also have I also have like what the the realization that this story doesn't just go the way I want it to, which is almost like some sort of advanced Dungeons and Dragons uh, death of the author.
1: Uh, an auteur theory. This is why when I'm teaching storytelling to folks for creative work or for entrepreneurial work, I always say that you need to know your truths about your world, story, and characters. And the characters are particularly important because ultimately, once you know the truths of those, you lose control over them. Mm-hmm. In teaching playing the game, but also in teaching and writing my own work, I found if I let go of what I wanted them to do, because it's what I thought things should be or they should do, I found instead what they needed, wanted, desired, and from that chose to do. And it might have been strange or bizarre or confusing at the time, but ultimately it was far more compelling.
2: I also think, uh, you know, com- coming at it was, uh, I was also like, you know, this is wonderfully pretentious what I'm about to say. I was telling Anna this, but... Uh...
1: You're a philosopher. You're allowed at least once a week.
2: <laughs> when, I, when I write a story, I, don't so much, I, I always think of kind of like missed. I don't so much write the story as discover the world. And, and I think there's a huge difference there because I feel like when you write a story, you, you try to impose constraints on the world. Whereas if you discover the world, you're just discovering new things about it as you write.
1: Your brother talked last year about the moment I realized that there are, in fact, if not dragons in the actual fire-breathing, raw treasure hoarding sense, there are something like them in terms of weird, monstrous, ancient and hoarding of knowledge and things hidden, forbidden, with which you can broker and exchange in return for a price. And it was that same moment of they have to get to this other place, this other side. How are they arriving there when they don't have the means themselves? And they were already traveling, traversing to this liminal space. So why would something like that, which I've already laid truths for and myth and lore from other characters, histories and lore and points of view, why would that not emerge at this point in time? So I took that what if, right? I don't want this to be here, but it seems like it's already here. So what if it is? Mm -hmm. Let's just see where the tale arrives. And it was this incredible, beautiful, weird, alien, surreal moment at the end of which they found themselves clearly and surely on the other side Mm -hmm. as the rains dissipated and they looked at the road they were now on. They were not at all where they had been. And there's a certain joy and delight, I find, as horrifying occasionally as the person ostensibly running or creating the things at times I might feel to, what do you mean this is true? If that's true, then what about all this other stuff that came before? Is that wrong now? I, 10 years mm-hmm. into writing the story, discovered my main character, Adam, is blind. Mm-hmm. I sat there one day and went, when it happened, and said, no, this can't be true. I've got an episode before I mentioned this with an interview. And then, lo and behold, when I look back to the first chapter, the prologue, right? All first person, all him laying out what the world looks like and seems like and feels like to him. The story he tells himself the way the world is. And the third or fourth Scene is him describing or trying to understand where the schism or fight between his parents first emerged, where there are two different, there became out of the one story they told him, two different senses of the world. And him starting to question that and through the questioning of it, no longer grasp the as fully, right, this world they had crafted for him. Something about it, the seams start to crack. So yes he could see and fear and he feel and hear all these things because in the world there are those too full of fire and those like his mother who dreamed too much who could craft for him this place of artifice that was his childhood home and i had laid all of that down even years and years ago so that when finally that deeper truth yes he's blind and here's why came to me i could look back and go oh okay i this was not conscious at all but i put it in there uh-huh. <laughs> Because those realizations, the deep, powerful ones, only arrive once you know all of the other truths that have led to it. Hmm. It's easy in retrospect to go, well, yes, that's obvious, but what did you have to believe and know to be true before you arrived at it?
2: (laughs) This sounds like any philosophy paper that's ever been written.
1: Honestly, when it comes to creative work, half of it is something of that nature. The other half is the Zen meditation of, Take your cup of knowledge and empty it out. Now you may write. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, when I, I'm sure this is like creative writing too, but um, uh, you you kind of you you get an idea in your head and you go, okay, this is this is what I'm going to write about. And you think you've like explored every single thing you can think of before you write, put pen to paper. And then you write, you start writing it down. You're like, I'm going to write this now. And you start writing words on paper and you're like, so I hadn't considered these billion other things because like, <laughs> like the process of putting pen to paper, like generates new mm-hmm. problems and ideas that you just couldn't know unless you put it to paper, which maybe that's just my mind.
1: Well, but you are making the unreal into something real. You're making infinite into a thing that is finite. Mm-hmm. And there is a certain process of elimination. And I, I I want to touch upon, because we were talking before about the way in which we are limited by our senses and our understanding of the world. I was reading a while back E.O. Wilson's The Origins of Creativity. And it's an interesting, te- an interesting text because... He is a very meticulous natural biologist and an entomologist by trade, I believe. So there are tracks, for instance, on particular kinds of ants and the architecture of their exoskeletons in loving detail. There's also a fascinating excerpt where he meets Nabokov for the first time, who is also a lepidopterist, one who collects and studies butterflies. So in the book, Wilson tries to in his mind, argue for the evolutionary role and function of creativity as a human trait. Within that context, then, he looks into how we understand the world based on what we are given in terms of comprehension, senses, the brain's faculties, et cetera. And he brings up this notion of umwelt, the world around us, to note the part of the, and I'm quoting here, the environment we're able to perceive by our unaided, importantly unaided senses. So No additional technologies, just what we are born with in some fashion or another. He then goes on a little further to talk about the idea of the Pleuston, which is the collection of organisms that live within this two-dimensional ecosystem, the surface of water. So water stradders, all those very unique, weird little critters there. And importantly, this is why I think his piece serves as kind of an entry place for our conversation today. The global Pleuston itself, he says, is frequently adapted, or pardon, is exquisitely adapted For the perpetually flat world in which it exists, its member species never leave except for short trips from one body of water to another. Upward and downward, he says, upward and downward trips, he says, into other realms of existence are rare and imperfect. Clouston dwellers are largely unresponsive in body and instinct to the rest of reality. The skin of water, along with what comes in and what goes out, is the universe they know. So here's a man talking about insects within a tiny, narrow band of existence, but he's using this to extrapolate how we ourselves live. And I felt this was pertinent here because Stephen and I, prior to this, have been talking about what we as philosophers, as creatives, as people whose job it is to delve into things at the liminal space, at the boundary, to make sense of what is not entirely sensible yet, and then try to find a way to convey that through some media, There. Is that moment where I think we we come across the limit of our own senses, right? Where we're trying to describe something either so weird, unique, bizarre, or surreal that words fail us, and often we refer to this in say religious texts as the numinous, right? And we talked about some of this in our biology in the xenobiology episode.
2: You're reminding me a little bit of ever the philosopher. I'm about to quote Kant here, so so Kant has this uh, this idea of the numinal realm, which is the realm of ideas. And uh, one of his one of his big points, and uh, if you're listening to this and you're a Kant scholar, forgive me if I don't get this absolutely right, right? Because I'm not that there are certain facets of the noumenal realm which are, in some sense, unknowable. So, kind of as as thinkers, our idea is that we kind of go as far as we can can into the realm of ideas. We 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 plunge the depths, and we get to a certain point where the the truth of the matter is absolutely beyond us uh, and so the examples he likes to give are the existence of free will he thinks that uh there are equal arguments for and against the existence of free will uh, i think he thinks the same thing about space time mm-hmm. and i forget what the third is about uh, but these are oh i think the existence of god lobsters. and
1: it was lobsters
2: it was definitely lobsters okay and so i, I just i just thought about while you're talking about that where you know we are we're thinkers and we're like we're going to we're going to delve into the depths and discover what's not known and we're gonna, we're going to we're going to think about things that well, at least in my field we think about things that can't be discovered empirically and then you wonder what what is the nature of our relationship to that journey you know is there an endpoint can we actually you know tie it down to something in reality and have something has some fixed knowledge or are we you know, ever cursed to continue exploring and continue coming up with new ideas without a definite stopping point that, yes, we've arrived at truth, or you know, if that's what you want?
1: This is where perhaps your field and mine overlap, because in my experience, both from the academic end and from the pragmatic end of crafting and creating the art itself, stories in a way are patterns that we attach to information and the sensations we decide or assign to them. So there are a way to inspire a thought, a course of action, or remember something by. But they are themselves a symbolic act. They are a representation of a thing, of an experience, a distillation of that. They're not by any means the entirety. Right. Right. So here we have the the primary experience, the thing we in the act of discovery encounter or find the secondary, which is the creation of the thing used to convey that. And then you, the reader, the viewer, etc.'s tertiary experience of what we've tried to explain to you from our own journey, that is in and of itself bound by our our senses and faculties. And it's amazing to me that as much meaning as we have today is conveyed based on that. Because we're already going three to four layers deep into sense and how we make and importantly, the fact that we have symbols that I can look on and recognize and go, oh, I derive the same meaning or similar enough meaning that you do from this. I had a dream, and this was one I wanted to mention to you a while back, because I've learned in writing that when I have dreams, I should pay attention to them. Often it is some element of your mind chewing over a thing you are too awake to pay attention to. I was at a it was a, a conference, and there was going to be a launch of a thing. There was a big monolithic, and I remember there was a large sheet-covered object in the center of this gathering room, right? And everyone was anticipating, waiting for it to be unveiled. And the basic hubbub about it was someone had finally discovered the means by which to preserve knowledge across time. So obviously, we're all eagerly anticipating what this brilliant discovery is. And there was the the prophet, as it were, the tech pro, however you want to call him, the character who is going to deliver this revelation unto us, Zerathurster will say. And I remember them pulling away the cloth and I remember being fascinated by how little was on, because it was mostly a some type of indescribable stone with things carved into it. And I don't want to diminish what I saw by calling them pictographs, but effectively they were that. There were no words, there was no narrative, there was no architecture, there was no structure. There was basically a lith with some of the most rudimentary forms of maybe sun, tree, body, land, etc carved into it and i remember being kind of mildly agog that this is it that all of our effort will be preserved through this (laughs) how are they going to unlock the rest of what we've done through this but it kind of is
2: i mean when you think about it aren't aren't letters just really fancy multi multifaceted faceted pictographs
1: they are ones that we've agreed upon and assigned meaning for
2: you know, when you say when you say that, it makes me think a little bit, and I'm just going to keep plumbing the depths of my philosophy education because, you know, I'm going to justify its existence, this this uh, this
1: podcast. <laughs> that's why we're recording.
2: That's why we're recording. Um, you know, it makes me think of of those. And you know, sometimes I really empathize and and want to be, even though I'm not. I want to be the the person who thinks that there's no abstract objects, right? Like, everything there is you see or you feel or you hear or it belongs to the world of the physical yes, and yes. we can we, and we can cast away such such vain notions as trying to plumb the depths of metaphysics such as it were plumb the depths of things that we can't study with our you know with our senses or with with our you know science mm-hmm. and i wish and honestly i really wish i was that because i think it would make it, it would make understanding the world if it were true a lot easier but to me the very existence of language the very existence that we can use words or symbols to to refer to these concepts that we all share in some sort of collective undertaking is itself wondrous and overwhelming. And uh, I, I think, you know, seeing a book, we sometimes get jaded and say, this is, you know, there's there a dime a dozen, although, you know, with technological age, what have you, but words are a dime a dozen. But the very existence of language is, is to me, uh, fascinating.
1: I remember reading a debate. Someone was talking about their dislike of devices to which another person countered. This was in my research into what forms of publishing are best available means and media, et cetera. So, you know, what whether people actually like adopting new technologies such as tablets, et cetera, readers, e readers. And the argument boiled down to why I don't like devices. Do you read books? Yes. Well, a book is a device. No, it's not. It doesn't have any technology attached to it. And the counter was OK, it, on the fundamental, on a rudimentary level, there's a hinge, right? We acknowledge that the hinge is a device. So your object contains a device in it. But then let's presume also the other types of invention and in technology, language, printing, and so on, that are required to make a book. And it seemed it seemed initially such a, a small, slight thing. But as you start to delve into the wonder that is the means by which we convey a story, electronically or otherwise, there's a, a joy and a beauty to that that is, as you said, easy to forget because it is so mundane to us now. And I wonder... Thinking back to that dream, yes, this we look at that monolith with man, tree, sun, woman, sky, stars, etc., and we go. in the dream, I went. That's it. But were that to be discovered, so many years hence, when nothing else was left, what a thing to uncover!
2: You know, you say that. I mean, the Rosetta Stone—how huge uh, a discovery was that! And what more was that was then ways of, of taking those hieroglyphs and, gosh, I'm going to sound like a real idiot of what I'm saying isn't true, uh, and translating them to other languages in a way that will, uh, that will allow us to uncover and decipher the rest of the language. Well,
1: I think to your point there, the realization that not only did they think in some ways enough like us that we could understand how they put thoughts together, but that we could reconstruct from others similar to us or closer to us in time and distance. And extrapolate from that sense, reason, and approximation of what type of thought they were trying to convey there. And that is that, you know, that expands our umwilt a little, right? But we don't have the actual sense of who they were. There's no real hermeneutics here beyond a certain point. We can't do a full exegesis of, well, you know, when this individual laid down the first paragraph here, here's what kind of coffee they were drinking. You know. The fact that I can go and write a book and actually lens my studio while I'm doing it is a deeply, weirdly different historical record of the the craft itself and the act of it and the person making the craft than we've had in the past. And I think we're not ready for that (laughs) richness of information and detail. We're used to stories that are, I think, as you said, they have a beginning, middle, and an end. And we walk away from that at the end. We make sense of them after the end. And they're not infinite in the layers. You can't dig down like some type of human lens or microscope, electron microscope, or I don't even know what they're using now because dating my science knowledge. But we can't dig down past the point of the visible field on a lot of that older material the way we can now to the craft itself, the life of the craftsman, and so on. And we also in the past, wouldn't have had podcasts where like I am right now talking to someone else, hey, here's the moment that I had this idea and here's what came out of it. So I think as I've told you with the book, right, I initially began it wanting to, as you did, be grounded in the real. Here are the characters, here are their lives, here's the world they live in. It's almost Earth, but not quite. I don't know why yet. I'll find it and you'll discover that too. I know now why, but the at the time I didn't. and Slowly creeping bit by bit were these moments of fantasy, of strangeness, of surreality, of fable. There came the, I think, in the second draft where I had to accept that, yes, there are those too full of fire, literally and figuratively. There are those who dream too much. And then ask myself, well, great, what does that mean for them to have existed in the world for such a time? Because clearly people will have had thoughts and actions based on that. And not all of those will be kind. I had this moment where I was writing a scene of Adam reflecting on, and he's an odd character because he has an unusual sense of now and then and sometimes can't dis- ascertain or differentiate between one or the other, it has to be kind of pulled, has to be pulled or extracted out of it. And here he is sitting on the ruins of one side of a bridge, the gate, the arch, and then this tremendous gorge. Think, think for instance, the Three Gorges River stretch. Um, I think it's the Yangtze in China, of that size, right? So imagine a bridge crossing that kind of span. And now in the present, as he's sitting on one side, staring at the ruins, he's remembering a moment, a ceremony, the actual celebration of the completion of this. And here he is sitting in this place. And transitionally, we often do this with flashbacks and the like in fiction, visually or auditorially or in the text itself. We'll look and be in a place and think about what it was like before. So you can use the cues of what is here now to build or envision what it was like before. So here I am building the scene, thinking for myself that here he is reflecting on what it was like back then when he was there at the time. And as I'm finishing the scene and coming back to the point where whoever's traveling with him calls him out of that reverie, there's this moment where he stops and asks himself, when did I end up on the other side? On the other, that side, or whatever the phrasing was to it. But I remember it was important here because there was a tonality to it that wasn't just, oh, I'm on the other side of the bridge looking at it from the other side, the other bank, the other shore, right? There was a sense that he was not on the same, within the same realm as he had been before when that bridge had been built and he was there with the others celebrating. That yes, he was here in a now looking at it, but this place he was in was not the world the story itself mostly occurs in. And now here I am as the writer going, that feels true and right, but What does it mean for this to have to have an other that side in a world that had none before? Right. (laughs) Because it seems to want to be here.
2: It reminds me a little bit of the phenomenon in in science fiction that we're we're obsessed with the idea of branching timelines and and multiple universes in which things are.
1: You've read The Man Who Murdered Muhammad, right?
2: I actually have not.
1: I won't spoil it for you, but it is it is about a mad scientist, or not initially a mad scientist, but one discovers his best friend and coworker cheating on him with his wife and decides to alter time to change that. Ah. And starts, to, and I will spoil nothing but branching timelines is a fundamental twist in the story.
2: Well, one thing it makes me think of is just these this idea that the the timelines are themselves different points different ways the world could be Mm -hmm. there's a concept in in this is gonna sound like a refrain soon there's a concept in philosophy uh it's known as the concept of possible worlds and and it's really it's actually one of my favorite little uh metaphysical points because it does a lot and i also just think it's really super fascinating and a possible world is this it's it's this abstract object so it's this thing that exists Depending on who you talk to, but we're going to say it's a thing that exists, and it's this idea or it's this this object that is this cluster of facts, and it's this maximal cluster of facts all the way down to the tiniest detail, and it's almost like reading a book. So a possible world is almost like this book that you read, and it tells you the way that things could be.
1: So in a sense, and, it can be all things till you. Finish it
2: exactly,
1: and it is it is. At its maximum potential when you first open it.
2: Exactly. And there and so every single time you put a statement into this book, of which you know there are multitude, if not an infinite number, of such a book, every time you put a statement into this book, you constrain the world a little bit. But the the fact about possible worlds is that if you if you take this idea seriously, then when you say this is not the world that, you know, X or Y. What you're saying is there is this world, in some sense, mm-hmm. this maximum, this set of this set of truths about a world that exists out there, and I'm comparing my experience now to that world. And, and I won't go into the details of why possible worlds are super fascinating for philosophy, but it just I always I always like to think of of possible worlds, not because. You know, you know, I'm this actualist who thinks, oh, yeah, there's this other multiverse out there, or what, what have you. <laughs> but because, I mean, some people actually do believe that in philosophy, yes. and they, it's, it's interesting. Um, but more because I, I think about that as the way of how do we, as human beings, think about what is not? How do we think about what is not the case?
1: Right, in order to understand what might be.
2: Exactly.
1: The idea of the null hypothesis, we can't be certain of how to test for what is. We need to rule out as many things that it might not be.
2: Exactly. And so, you know, I think about the fact that you strip away different layers of the what is not. And so you start with the sort of really almost on the level facts that we start with, hey, that thing is green and not red. And then you dig back a little bit and you say, hey, you know, the force of, you know, the force of gravity is this as opposed to this. And then you peel back a little further and you get to something that's like, hey, the law of non-contradiction says that it can't both be the case that something is and something isn't. And and, and as you peel those layers back, you seem to get something like fundamentality, like this, this notion of there's something there which we can't change, that no matter how hard we try, we have reached the limit of what is and isn't the case.
1: There's a, a scene early on in the book, around chapter five or six, and I wrote it a long time ago, but I, I always return to it now because it speaks to this exercise where Adam and Connor, the two protagonists, meet they are traveling together to where they will participate in the military that they'll both be a part of. And on the way down, Connor has brought with him all the things from his home that matter and have significance, including a few apples from his family's orchard. And so he reaches unthinkingly back from the back of the, the car or the vehicle to hand an apple as one would to the people he's traveling with. And this particular chapter is from Adam's point of view. It spurs this thought and this memory because the apple to him is wrong. It is black, almost pitch with these strange, the strange kind of golden white luster-like stars to it. Although it still has the beautiful, rich same color on the inside, the skin of the apple is wrong. And it's not just wrong as in, okay, well, you eat, you know, Granny Smith apples. be like macoons. It's wrong as in apples are not that. I know what an apple is. I have an apple orchard. I've seen apples wherever I've traveled. Apples are not that. Yeah. I don't know what you've given me. And it's in that moment the scene emerged. It was just, a, okay, well, this is a weirdness between where they live. And it sparked a memory from when they met a long time ago at an earlier point in the narrative, because the story does repeat itself in some fashions. And I thought that was a small thing at first, but to your point, as I reflect back on that, which one of those is from here and which one of those is from there?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. There is a, so I let, I let the assumption stand. What if there is this other, that side, what is it like? I don't know. All I know is one character's moment of being inside of it. And that's from his way of understanding the world, which is of established as weird to begin with. So I can't trust alone his sense there. I need to see what another, as a writer, I need to not trust even my senses because I'm not the one telling the story. I need to look from the lens of the character who is describing and see what realizations come to them. So Connor, later on, through means and sacrifices, ends up being able to see things he couldn't before. He gives as Odin an eye in exchange for something close, but not quite. And as Dave mentioned during our conversation about it, they said it's fascinating. He gave up certainty, his understanding of what is, for a the possibility for the ability to see what might be. So now Connor, with the ability to see what might be, thinks back, reflects on or sees what he couldn't before and recalls, literally and figuratively, this time he and his siblings decided to travel to find a thing their father had left on the other side. He was born in a family of seven siblings. The fifth did not survive. He remembers as a child with his siblings finding his father walking out into, past the orchards, past the or past the fields and the orchards, into the woods where other things dwell at night. Through all of that toward old ruins with this bundle he carries quietly, clearly the fifth child. We don't know if it's alive or not, but he takes this daughter of his and hands it to something there, takes it away from them. And they never hear or find about that again. And now years later, these strange things are falling, satellites or other odd fragments from the sky catching into their orchard, burning trees down, smashing some of the older buildings. And one large one lands in the forest farther and farther and in, way into the deep and the dark of it so here they are venturing in the heart of the night with their train of lanterns each of them carrying a different color of light and connor's remembering in a sense that journey it's been a long time since i revisited the scene so even in my memory i have to kind of delve back into the banks of it if it makes sense to make sure i'm recalling it the way he did and as i slowly followed them through it became clear that the forest they're walking through is not here but somewhere else entirely it isn't Earth, but something like Dunskythe or Enos Aphalon. It's either adjacent to, on the shores of, or just at the beginning of somewhere else entirely. And they wander as far as they might on that side to find something that might be their sister or something else entirely. It's left until the last minute to be clear on that and the, the horror that arises what they find. But that gave me a second look into what it is like when someone else through their history, their world, their lens, their own world arrives in this other side. And what that said to me is entirely different depending on who arrives.
2: Uh, One thing I'm always really interested in is this difference between what is the case Mm -hmm. and how I or you or someone else interacts with what is the case. If we take as a starting point something that is incredibly controversial, but I'll just go with it, that The world, you know, there's a truth about the world, or what have you. There's this kind of interesting point of subjectivity that there is this separation between myself and my world, or there is a separation between you and your world, or the listener in this world, and what we see, how we interact with the world, what we believe about the world, our perceptions are themselves inevitably tied to the the way we the our subjectivity and i think about this case and i think about you know what what happens in a, you know how is my understanding of my environment shaping the way that this this world is why why is it that me specifically should come here and have these experiences is there some way in which my fundamental subjectivity is affecting the objectivity of this other world.
1: It's fascinating because in other experiences they've had for that, there's a there are two points which are fundamentally one in terms of how at least three different characters and probably others as well have experienced this place. And it, it falls back in a way onto a looseness of language I found myself using at the beginning, which was there is a sea, it's called the Long Night Sea. And why is it the Long Night Sea? Because when you reach a point on it, you can't tell what the sea and the sky is. It all looks quite the same. Mm-hmm. It's still, there's are no waves, there's no motion. The stars are above as they are below. And Adam lived closer to that than most folks. So he had moments or chances to delve into that. And for him, the unknown, the world within his mythology and family lore and history and faith is most reflected by that liminal space where the night is the sea, is the sky. And there is no differentiation at heart with that other characters have found what they kind of refer to as the shore which plays into the idea of you know enos aphalon the place that is there but not quite where kings of yore etc reside things had been where dreams death sleep go to lie right and i've seen this in my work and others as well where that same idea of the mirroring you see this in the bolivian salt flats when the water is right when the sky is right where at the best frame at that moment of capturing beat you can barely discern which is which and i think that notion of reflection not just that where you are in this place reflects who you are but that it is exist as a reflection or rather they can only be seen you can only see or recall through the reflection you experienced right as much as you might be in the water and try to dig through it and feel what is there it's only your memory your dream your the experience of it that you're sifting through it's in a sense, a you that is smaller than you that you take with you after you've left it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what you're trying to make sense of after it's occurred. It's already a diminishment of the thing in the place you were, but it's something finite that you can hold on to that becomes the dream or the memory.
2: You remind me a little bit of, one time I was I was asking these questions again recently. Uh, last year, I read this book by Aaron Morgenstern uh, called The Starless Sea. Mm-hmm. And it's this... And so and so the Starless Sea is is basically the 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 bounds of creativity. And a lot of fascinating things go on in it, but I think about the the sort of storytelling as its own force, intricately because it's not tied to you and me. No. Creativity is intricately tied to you or me, and yet it is something other than you or me. And you go to the starless sea to almost become in touch with creativity itself. But in some sense, you give creativity its—you by existing give creativity its vision. You give you give life to creativity. You are the you are the source of its power. So it's both separate from you and inextricably tied to you.
1: There's a a quotation from Ray Bradbury. I heard shortly before he died. It's how he ended his speech at the L.A. Times Book Fair. I want to bring it up. He said, "Man is the flesh of God as it moves through the universe." That in a sense, if there is some type of external creative being, it cannot create without the means to make. And it seems such a weird idea. I'm not saying this is necessarily the one I was exploring in the book, but the sense that there's potential, but the potential cannot exist until the moment of reflection or contact.
2: And I think that's just such a powerful notion. And I think, you know, maybe tying back to what we talked about before, when we tap into that creative side, that potential side, at least for myself, there is the sense that both it is intimately- f- familiar and utterly foreign mm. that it is both something I want and something I didn't know. I think about this when writing story. I think about this when drawing you and you had the experience as as a as an author or as a artist mm-hmm. that what you intended to make was not what you made <laughs> no and i i I think about that a lot because. You know, you might, you might just tie that to, you know, patterns in brain chemistry or what have you. And I think there's a perp- there's a per- perfectly good place for that. But I also think about what that means, that there is such a discrepancy often between what I intended and what I made. And what does that say?
1: I think, and this is funny because we were talking about Frankenstein during the last episode, when the creator makes something that is not what they desired or, or intended or meant for, but have to confront and witness it nonetheless there is a sense of it being alive there's a life to it one of my coaches for instance works with someone who entitles herself a book midwife because she likens the creation of books to a birthing there's a thing that eventually exists has to exist outside of you if you want it to survive on its own and it needs to and will it live you will have a life of its own and that life will be different as it is experienced by others that you have no control over of in that moment or in that time, right? There's a, a relinquishment fundamentally after you've made, after in this moment of encounter of creation, where you also let go of it. You recognize, then you let go. Knowledge recognize, let go. And it is it is so weird. I, have, I haven't told you this one. I mentioned it off probably in an interview recently. In a later scene, as they were traveling toward this liminal place, The Palings, which... <laughs> let's let's make things mythic to begin with why don't we <laughs> ruins of something that fell from the sky ages ago that have a trace of them of that left behind in them someplace where memories things from the past could still be preserved are still nascent sleeping they were going to save a friend who was there somehow but not quite they find him and he's mostly on the other side so they have to then venture to that to find him retrieve him right but On that journey, Connor asks Adam what his home, his childhood home was like. And here I describe to you, as I'm seeing it, the story of Adam telling what his home Samadhi was like on this road. And it becomes a deeply allegorical road of death, dreams, and sleep. And this village of Samadhi is described as the place where everybody is this one way. They're happy all the time. And he, as a child, decides that eventually he wants to see what the other places are like, where everyone's angry, where they cry, or this or that. And his parents tell him, you don't want to, you don't have to, there's no need or reason to go beyond the place we're alive in right now. He's a child, he's unreasonable, he demands and insists, and eventually they give in. So his father takes him on this journey to see what the other villages are like. And eventually, as all children want to, he gets tired and says, I want to go home. And his father says, You can't. And the boy asks why. And he says, We're on the road to death, dreams, and sleep. There's only one way that it goes. And sure enough, when they arrive at the end of that road, which of course leads back home, being a fable as it is, nothing's left except the ruins that have been there for (laughs) so long. And I wrote this. And obviously, it's Adam making an allegory for what his childhood was like in some sense, not really wanting to talk about it. So, alluding to things without saying. So, there's that performance and the craftsmanship of it there. But I told this story to my folks because it seemed as you had said, familiar, as I spoke it. And they looked at me and they said, you first told us that story when you were five. Wow. And I sat there. And this is a a work I've been working on for a time, as folks know, but I didn't think that long a time. And it made me, I think, as you said, start to wonder if we empty the cup, if we let the vessel receive, and the vessel is, as you said, unique, the shape it receives in will change what was received to fit that, to convey it, to carry it to someone else. If I remove my expectations and everything else I want or desire or drive this to be, what arrives in that place? I sat and spoke to my friend, Nick Laurie. We did a recording recently of, and he's deeply religious. He said, you know, you, there's, this trili- there's this trinity. You have the Moshiach, those who are too full of fire, the Shehna, the dwelling of, right? Those who dream too much. And I had mentioned to him, there are allusions to the third kind, the Bodhi. Those who are a child and more, they're awakened to something else beyond, right? So then the question becomes, where are they awake where no one else is or might be? And I realize that in the book itself, as much as I re- speak to the characters' needs, wants, and desires, the deep emotional grounded drives that lead on them in the journey they're taking, there's this element of using the language of gods and monsters to describe what is not everyday life both in the literal and figurative sense, that there are things beyond us that exist in this world, but they're as literal as they are allegorical. And that's not something I tried to achieve. They just are. Sure enough, when they encounter this thing that is like a dragon, that brings down the storms, that is undulating serpentine beast that has one eye missing and the other that has two eyes kind of Congealed together that it slides around, around as it likes, that is horrifying, that brings with it the, its own shrine that it dwells in. It creates effectively its own weird space around them that is its home. And they confront and they trade and they bargain and escape it. And when it leaves and the storm passes and there's only the soft rain pattering behind, they're on the beginnings of the other side. So that when I go to that next chapter, and I'll give you this first, in the prologue, Adam describes the myth of what. The gods were like when they made the world of how they ventured from that place that was the deepest well of night carrying the seed of the sun through long night seas and cities dark and fields of wheat along this road. And sure enough when they arrive through his way to the other side, where are they on but that road? And it took me a moment as I was describing to realize well what else would it be like for him? because this was the end, this was the beginning for him as as far as the world goes, from what he knows. So why would he not start the journey on the other side where everything begins to find where he'll arrive? Because you have to have a beginning, of course, to reach the end. I think back to what Nick had said when I saw him at his wedding a few years ago, where I told him I'd let go of wanting this to be a fully realistic, rounded, articulated handmaiden's tale. And he said, thank you. Embrace the fairy tale. Let the fable be there because it already is.
2: Some ways you're already on the other side.
1: Yeah, it's a... In a strange sense, the from the very beginning chapters, if you have a character who is has his heart given back to him, that implies there's a world, such a world that there exists such a world where he can be taken away in the first place and he can survive. So already that world is strange and different and weird in a way that's not like ours. It's fascinating though to me, because that that phrasing of the road to death, dream and sleep, that this liminal place seems to be defined in some ways, despite not despite but by all their experiences as a place that is all of those at once it's not just where say spirits go to reside there in the book is a heavy symbolism of hummingbirds to reflect both a psychopomp something that takes what is passed on to another side but also is reflective of that that third kind the third of the trinity or deities as nick liked to call them that is quiet or hidden that is not as apparent as the other two in the narrative and things that occur by their actions, that those who are full of fire, those who dream too much, are derived from, in a sense. And I accepted that and followed that. And just as there were, there were dragons at some point, in a sense, in a fictional meta narrative sense, things that were made to be like dragons because someone had read what dragons were like and thought, that's neat, let's make that. I realized who would make that but children finding a book of what dragons are like, right? Who right. else? But those who have the power to dream too much would dream into existence something fantastic they had seen elsewhere. And then suddenly there was this bridge between their worlds and ours, between the things we know to be true, between our umwelt and theirs. So at some point, while everything else was lost, while so many things are gone, there is a place in which, if nothing else, there were three left who found enough and decided, yes, let's try this. Let's have that again.
2: That's a really cool
1: idea. And it it came to me through the, I think, as you said, because of my my subjectivity, I don't usually find those things. And I've learned through my process, this is why so often I teach process in creative writing and in non as well, in the promotional and the business as well. You have to find those details in a specific sense often to arrive at the larger revelatory truths. As I think we said at the beginning of this conversation. I was describing, I remember, Adam's father was giving to him a book, not quite a book, but an object that contained a story and experience inside it. Some relic from long, long beyond known time. And there we go. I'd meant, I wanted to bring this up to you sooner. I'm not a huge fan in fiction and metafiction of the precursors as a narrative hitch, right? Mm -hmm. That 5,000 years ago, there was a great creative (laughs) alien race that bestowed upon man. (laughs) I know why it exists, because it was probably amazing the first time. That's usually why those tropes exist in the first place. And two, it's incredibly useful. It just allows you to lay down a whole bunch of truths and get people to accept that they're right. Because how are we to say? You've basically made some form of God, and we can't defy that. So instead, I found this weird sensation where there was a gap, there was a lacuna. There was a moment of things that had been that no one knew enough or well about, but they used words like the lacuna to describe because it is the gap between two things, physical or otherwise. They know there's a hole in knowledge and things known and in the world they know that they can't find enough about. And they don't think that that was a monolithic people, but they still sometimes refer to them as the article lacuna because it's easier, right? Conceptually to think of, whatever existed prior to the unknowns as something monolithic. They did something foolish enough to essentially wipe themselves out or leave nothing but that gaping hole behind. And this device, whatever it is that Joseph gives to his son, Adam is older than that by far. And it was an odd chapter because I wrote it in three pieces, two short stories and then a chapter following it from Connor's point of view. That was the journey to the other side with his family. Mm-hmm. And those three chapters were titled In Darkness, Thunder, and Silence. So two of them, Adam's, In Darkness and Thunder, third one, Silence. darkness, Adam gets this weird device from his father and experiences this memory of walking over the surface of this ancient decrepit ship creaking away within a sea that's almost entirely black with just a few lights to some sides. And as they're walking over the surface of in whatever garbs or clothes they have to wear to survive, there's these bizarre undulating substances that are blooming in odd colors. There's detritus floating around, circular, encircling, gyring. And bit by bit they approach the prow of the ship to where something isn't something is. They know there's a thing because the boat, whatever it is, can't go any further. It has encountered something that has mass and being and substance. That lets them move no further, but they can't see it. So the whole journey here is just them going to the prow of the ship to dig in, activate the lights again, and see what it is. And I was so unsure, one of where this was because it wasn't the other that side. It wasn't the world I described. It seems like it's space, and they're in space. You know, they're in some sort of arc, right? And they're, mm-hmm. on, they're in suits, and none of this fits into the story. <laughs> so here I am as the writer, going, "What have I done?" Right. Because we all do this. We have that thing, okay. This is so cool. I want to find it out. And there's that fear the whole time of right, but does this actually belong? And I thought back to where Adam finds his father in the study, making this right to the fire in the fireplace that is not the rights Adam knows. They're older and stranger. And to in the prologue, even how his father said there's a promise that was made to us that night, a promise of fire that they would give us stars by which to guide. And Here in this moment, when they flick on the lights, they encounter something that wasn't quite what it is until the light shines on it. And it's clear that whatever the light shines on isn't it in entirety. It's what is found and encountered them at the same time. And they're changed irrevocably as a result of that. I just, I could see it. I could feel in that gut sense, right? That this was a truth I was witnessing, that I had to find where it belonged in the story. As my insides are wrenching at the thought of how and why. (laughs) but here is this numinous thing halila this night twilight that only exists in the moment there is still something to shine whatever is beyond that is something else entirely or unknowable it's eldritch right but it gives them this thing that changes them that makes them closer to what they were helps them recognize it's not clear i let it be unclear because i wasn't sure at the time and that beat is the end of in darkness because that's what they find in the dark thunder then comes down to them as children at an earlier point of time from an earlier narrative in the world they were in, arriving at the palings and what that was like. And I say this so often to my students, ask yourself what is, is you know, what is, and follow the why, because I don't, I don't have an answer as to what the experience is and the mechanics behind it, the actual, if we want to call them metaphysical mechanics, right? When you venture into that unknown, be it internal or external, And you listen or hear or look or use whatever senses are available to you. What is your experience with that moment been like?
2: It's strange. Uh, And I think that the strangeness is the idea that you think that you are doing something entirely under your control or entirely by your own devising, that it's your path and you are reasoning it out or you are you are putting guideposts down or you are climbing that mountain and then you get to that point of of some sort of new idea or some sort of numinal space and you you turn around and you feel like all of the the tethers back to reality aren't there. And I don't mean in some sort of like sense, like, I don't know where reality is. I mean, in the sense like
1: climbed a mountain to arrive, but there's no mountain where you are.
2: Exactly. Like all the steps that seem to lead to this point just aren't there anymore. And it's this sort of the surreal moment where you feel like you've stumbled upon something majestic, but you don't know how to take that thing and bring it back to you or me or, or, or bring it to somebody else. And that sort of creative process is almost like attempting at it. It's like taking a photograph of it and trying to bring it back or I'm taking a painting of it and trying to bring it back. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you get back, you're like, well, that doesn't quite, that's not quite what I meant or that's not quite what the awe-inspiring thing was, but it's the best you got.
1: I've been working with an illustrator and I had her do a few pieces, one for Adam and Connor. She's working on Sophia right now. But I had sent the illustration of Adam and Connor to Nick, who has never seen any descriptive text of what the characters were like. I hadn't told him what color the hair was, the eyes, etc. He just knew what they were like internally: their needs, their wants, desires, their emotional world, what drives them. And he, as soon as he opened up the email, he went, "Yeah, that's Adam." <laughs> and it's so amazing to me that that wasn't lost in translation. Right? That yes, I the act of him receiving the image is the act of climbing the mountain and only seeing the sunset or the sunrise that it's so intense and unfiltered there's nothing else left behind but being able in some fashion describe that another person going yes that's that sunrise you got there on the day it shines i don't think the creative work or writing in itself only drills within that surreal or sublime realm because i think with if the work itself only exists there, it doesn't exist, one, because it, mm-hmm. it never has mm-hmm. a shape to it. The realization never arrives to anyone or anywhere else. So then the challenge, I think, becomes how do we, if in our fictive work or our everyday life encounters some other sense or way of being in a place, take what we've learned from that journey, because it's always a journey. And I guess we'll work at this two ways. We'll talk fiction first and then extrapolate into everyday life, if that makes sense. Sure. So as I said before, people like to, in the world, describe that there are the lacuna. There's a people that tried to, I think, as you said, not just climb the mountain, but make sure the path was carved so they could take it on the way down too. And that seems almost overly simplistic for what led to there being such a phenomenal cosmic absence of things. But I wonder, what is it that would, in your experience, drive people to push so far beyond the boundaries of what is reasonably safe to know and into the realm of hubris?
2: That's a, that's an interesting thing to ask. Um, I mean, because... you're a philosopher.
1: It's something you probably experience daily.
2: <laughs> well, if I haven't experienced it, which I shouldn't be arrogant enough to say I haven't, I definitely <laughs> know people who have experienced it. You know, I, I think... There is a sense of, and I can just kind of tell you from from where I explore, there's a sense of confidence. And I, I would describe the philosopher's journey not as a single path, but a sort of a circle that it kind of loops on itself, where you're confident that you can get at something that you can make some sort of solid contribution that you can discover that truth and so you you it's it's almost in some sense in in your most arrogant points you might be it might be hubristic right that i can i alone can gather the the truth of of morality or the truth of the truth of the way the world actually is in some sort of deep metaphysical sense
1: it's tempting isn't it it's it's what you're working to the whole time anyway
2: yeah. And, and I think, I think there's, there's a couple of things that kind of pulls you back at least that holds me back. You know, the first of which would be, you know, I come from a long line of those who have attempted just that and have failed miserably. Um, I come from a long line of those who have attempted just that and have been outshone by natural scientists. But also there's this sort of pessimism in your own work that, you know, and I, and this is kind of one thing I wanted to get at when talking to you because something you said before made me think about it was there is the sense that the undertaking, the collective undertaking, it's not just myself climbing the mountain. There are others along that ride too. And when you show them your picture of the mountain, they themselves see a different picture. Mm. And that, means that they're going to look at your picture and they're going to say, that's not what the mountain looks like. And you think about it and one, they're, you know, a incredibly smart or incredibly knowledgeable, but also b like, sometimes, you know, when they say that's not what it looks like you, you look at the picture again, you're like, Oh, huh. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that isn't what it looks like. Or I have to be more clear. And so I think, you know, you, so, so you start out, you're like, I have these grand ideas and then it's sort of like the tethers of the tethers of earth and your fellow, your fellow journeyers bring you back and say, this is not, this getting lost in this numeral realm is not the way the place you want to be.
1: I think it's important. I remember texting or tweeting, I suppose, a while back. The, I find the best way to convey the surreal is to ground it in the real that however weird the moment is and strange the being is or the reasons why, you have to place it within the things we can understand, appreciate, and experience so that we have a place, we have a moment we can agree upon to build from. If we can't decide or say, for instance, on this example, that that is a mountain and that's the mountain I saw during that sunrise, then we have to start smaller. This is what the ground is like. This is what that path up the mountain is like, that particular path. Here's what it feels like walking these particular steps. Here's where people often sleep. Here's where I tripped. Here is every, if you're walking through a field of weed, even if it's a real field of weed in a dreamland, what is the brush against your heel so that by the time the larger, stranger things arrive, one, they're likely not as strange because they're within the context of what's been described. But two, they are by that preface dragged out of the depths of the sea into some form of light
2: you're reminding me of kind of a thought uh, a thought which is that oftentimes i think the best way of in- interacting with the noumenal is instead of aiming for the mountain like you said aiming for the ground or aiming for um this particular patch of sunlight and contenting yourself. I think that's very important, Uh, contenting yourself with the fact that chances are pretty good that the overarching picture of the mountain, the one that you want, is never going to happen. But that doesn't mean that the the work that you've done to lay out the mountain is not incredibly valuable, or is not getting at something. And so I think, oftentimes, um, the work of creativity—and I'll I'll take it back to philosophy—the work of philosophy is at its best not when it's aiming for the grand sweeping gestures. I have solved this, <laughs> um, but it is to its more um, precise found its precise uh, outputs, where you say, "Here is a here is a problem." Here is where this patch of sunlight doesn't quite look right. Let's even it out. Will you eventually get the whole picture? I tend to be fairly pessimistic about the about that. I don't think that we're ever going to get the full picture. Mainly because I'm not sure that all of our tools are are good enough to get us the full picture. I just wonder if there aren't some things that we'll never get that that picture of the mountain the way we want it. Much like the picture never comes out the way that you want it to come out, the work of writing never comes out the way you want it to come out, I don't think we're ever going to fully capture that mountain.
1: Well, I think to your point there, part of the limitations we often don't see as limitations are what we think things should be. We've been talking about mountain, but one of these, the most basal assumptions here is that it is in fact mountain.
2: Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-huh.
1: If someone tells you that's a rather fascinating valley, <laughs> or beyond that, I see no mountain here at all, but something else in entirety. You do have to, and you know, it's a little bit of sophistry you can get into with visual, with visual illusions and tricks. But the more the more salient point here is that when you start to realize that what you want the thing to be and believe it to be is in fact part of your own world part of your sense of the world around you and what you grasp of it can reasonably grasp onto before you even begin to apply tools. And then, as you've said, when you begin to apply those tools, there's the question of, are they the right tools? Are they in good condition? Do I know how to use them? Is this the right time for them? I was following a conversation editing recently, and there was, unsurprisingly among writers, a great deal of opinion on when and why to edit. And I know Some folks made the hard declaration, well, I never edit. I just write what I write and continue. And I thought to myself, well, that's utterly foolish until I said, okay, I might think that, but why and when would that work and for whom? For what purpose? If their aim is to make a regular profit and they're churning out first ideas to sell as first ideas, then yes, the need to edit is quite limited. And there are others who said, well, I I quagmire, I drown in the editing because I lose sight of what I'm doing and why. Or there are so many possibilities that open up when I begin to pull away at the threads of what I assumed were right, that I no longer have any sense of what is true anymore in the tale. There's nothing left to guide. And I remember one of the most simple rules I established for myself as I struggled with this was I will edit one day and write another. I will go into the depths of the numinous some days and see what I find where I arrive. And other days, I will sit there under my patch of sunlight literally and figuratively and just winnow away at what's been described to see if it can be a lead a little bit closer to what it was perhaps like. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now. But you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be a Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.